0: welcome to teach me in 20 each week i'll release a new podcast where i get to speak with awesome people who have something new to teach me that i know nothing about if like me you're naturally curious about everything this could be the podcast for you so come along for the ride it'll only cost you 20 minutes Hey guys, welcome to the next episode of Teach Me In 20 with Karis Ryan. Today, we're with Joseph. Joseph traded diamonds for Argyle Diamonds and Rio Tinto Diamonds, as well as privately for 12 years. Welcome along, Joseph.
1: Thanks for having me, Karis.
0: For layman people like myself, can you describe the work
1: that you did? Yeah, sure. I used to work for a mining company previously and selling uh, pink polished diamonds around the world, mainly to Europe and the States. Yep. Yeah. And following that, I, um, I got a promotion to go and live in Belgium and sell rough diamonds from there. So I spent three years selling rough in Belgium.
0: So what's the difference between rough and the pink ones? Oh,
1: well, pinks are mainly polished stones, and the rough stones, are as they come from the mine, they're cleaned and then they're sold.
0: Okay. So how did it all work? Are businesses come to you and they tell you what they want and you're in charge of going to get it?
1: Or well, the two, two different business models for both the polished stones and the rough stones. Yep. So in the polished... Space we're working in very high-end fancy-coloured stones, very expensive stones, and so we would have a customer base that we would sell to and then would negotiate on a stone-by-stone basis. Okay. Um, Whereas the other business is really about getting the stones out of the mine, actually cleaning the stones and then assorting those stones, and then you would have, again, customers that would buy different assortments if they're into large stones or smaller stones, depending on their business model.
0: So how long is the process from it being mined to then getting to your customer?
1: Uh, in the rough form, it probably take about four months maybe.
0: That's not that long. I no, thought no. it would have been way longer. Hmm.
1: And in polished form, um, probably a little bit longer, maybe about eight months. Okay. It really depends on the stone and the complexity of the stone as to when you cut it, as to how long it will take.
0: You mentioned before about you know, it depends on the... Price and stuff as well. What's the biggest amount that when you were dealing that someone paid or a business paid for? I've,
1: you know? stone, I've sold stones uh, over five hundred million in one year so in terms of value. One
0: but stone? No, no, no. This oh. is a, a I was volume like,
1: of stones. God, what is in this? But in individual stones, probably about three and a half million.
0: Okay. Yeah. So why that much? Well, you know, uh,
1: it really comes down to you know, particularly in the fancy colour space, the stones are very rare. They're hard to find. And in the larger sizes, three carats, five carats and up, um, there's fewer and fewer of those stones available. So oftentimes you see them coming to auction. And um, depending on the colour, the clarity, the size, and um, if it's got any provenance in terms of who's owned it previously, then they certainly uh, go up in value. Every time they come back to the market, they tend to sell for more money.
0: So you meant, I know you have a wife. Was it the biggest pressure to buy her a decent diamond ring?
1: It's really unfortunate because uh, I'm a big fan of um, fancy-coloured stones, of diamonds particularly, and um, when it came time to get her engagement ring, she just wanted a, a white stone, so I got uh, a, a, a round white stone.
0: Yeah. yeah, You're like, I can do so much better than
1: that. <laughs> I did offer, but uh, yeah.
0: Gosh, she turned it down.
1: You get much better buying value for white stones than fancy-coloured stones. So Really? Yeah, so for like a quarter-carat stone that looks like a small, small rock like mm. this, you, you know, in a fancy, intense... Oh, sorry. Fancy vivid purplish pink? You probably pay anywhere around forty or fifty thousand dollars for the stone. It's only a quarter of a carat, and for that kind of money, you get a two-carat white easily. Okay. Yeah.
0: So you've mentioned as well you've travelled a bit. You must have some stories from. I mean, twelve years in the industry.
1: Oh yes. Is there anything
0: that just stands out?
1: Certainly. Yeah. It's, an, it's been an interesting ride. You know, we once had a, an occasion to take customers to Venice for a weekend, and because two of the brothers didn't particularly. Um, fly together. We had to charter two flights, two planes.
0: Like the two brothers were your customers?
1: Two brothers were one of our customers, yep, yep. but they don't fly on the same plane. So we had to have two planes. It's all about succession planning <laughs> and making sure that um, if someone were to pass, that the other person could take over the business. Ah. Yeah. And so it was a great, great weekend. You know, we had uh, fantastic food and wine and, you know, touring Murano and Burano and the glass manufacturing. And
0: How has the industry changed since you first started? What have you seen evolve? It's uh,
1: yeah, it's really an in- interesting industry to work in because um, it's fairly personality driven, and there's uh, a handful of key influences. You know, I've had uh, experience with people that are you know billionaires as a result of working in this business, um, and these people that have just failed. The same billionaires failed because of um, being in a particular part of the market that fell away quite quickly. So
0: and then lost everything.
1: Yeah, lost everything, but you know, in terms of a business, I'm sure he's doing okay personally, but. I suppose the biggest challenge, I was working uh, in Belgium in 2007 when they had the global financial crisis. Mm -hmm. And the way the industry works is that you have um, the raw material, which is the diamonds that come out of the the mine, the rough that goes into a pipeline and they get polished. The process itself is fairly complicated because you want to try and maximise the return on every stone. So they cut as much as they can to get uh, the best purity and the best size and the best colour, depending on what, what the stone is. Um, As a result, the cash flow situation happens. You you have an input processing and then you sell the polished stone at the other end. But unfortunately, at that time, um, sales weren't happening because of the financial crisis. And so, you know, we would normally sell 10 10 times a year. We were struggling to sell, you know, once once every month kind of thing just to sell something because the whole cash flow model had dried up. And a lot of these companies rely on banks, you know, to finance them and to get... um, uh, that That pipeline of of product coming through so
0: you worked for the company as well. Was there also private stuff as well because you mentioned before it 's a really personality driven industry, so I guess it 's a lot of networking and yeah, does it, can it evolve in that way as well
1: uh, I, I worked you know um, selling rough over in Belgium, and then after that started my own business just uh, sell, selling polish to private customers yeah. And in that space, you know, when you're dealing with the end customer, they're a bit more fickle than if you're dealing with a trader or someone that's in the business and understands how it works. How so, so? Well, for argument's sake, one time in Hong Kong, I had $6 million worth of stones sitting in a room and had about 30 people come to see it, not all at once, but in groups of two or three, and, you know, didn't make one sale out of that whole situation. But then the following week in Singapore, I'd made a sale of well over a million dollars just simply based on, you know, the appetite of the people that were there. And a lot of it's about education, teaching people to understand what is it, what is the value, where is the value in the stone, why is this rare as opposed to this stone being rare, okay. and, and which one, where should you put your money? And so I always say to people, if you're wanting to invest in stones, which is becoming more and more popular, particularly in fancy-coloured stones, to put as much money into one stone as you can rather than buying four or five small stones. Okay. Yeah. Right. And try and best buy the best colour and purity you can for the money.
0: Fantastic. Well, mm-hmm. then now we know. Let's get onto those, <laughs> those <laughs> ones and make bank. Sure. <laughs> so what was the best thing about your work? What did you enjoy most?
1: Uh, I actually enjoyed the product probably the most. I mean, I enjoyed interactions with people as well. But um, w- when you go and I suppose I've been privileged to be able to sell in the very high end of the market, you know, to the very uh, – high-end jewellers based out of London or, or based out of New York and uh, Los Angeles um, and also out of Switzerland. And so when you're sitting by these people, they sometimes bring out their merchandise or their stock that they have and you'll see things there that you'll never see, or the common person will never see in their life or even appreciate what it is. Like what? Like, like you know, 10, 20, 30-carat, you know, fancy-coloured diamonds, whether they're oranges or... They're greenish-blues or reds or purplish-reds. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the actual um, colours of diamonds are almost like the colours of the rainbow. And when you understand the nuances of it all, you kind of really appreciate um, something that's very special. All, all the coloured stones uh, that are natural... Um, are as a result of some sort of element or mineral that's sitting by. So for argument's sake, with blue, you can have uh, hydrogen blues, which are very clean blue, or you can have a boron blue, which throws kind of like either a grey blue or a violet blue, or blue-violet colours, which are also very pretty, you know. And so remembering colour is a spectrum. You have normally a primary colour, which is the main colour of the stone, and then you have a secondary colour. And the secondary colour can be viewed as, you know, something that enhances a stone, or it can be viewed as something that detracts from it. So... For argument's sake, you know, brownish pinks aren't seen as attractive compared to purplish pinks, for right. argument's sake. okay. Yeah.
0: With the, the private side of it, did you ever work with like royalty, and that like that type of like high-end customer? Uh,
1: no, but I would deal with uh, people who did deal with royalty and, you know, movie stars and that kind of stuff, so. Okay. So, in fact, um, uh, when I was working by Argyle Diamonds, you know, I used to take the tender around to uh, Europe and the States, which is the pink diamond tender, and that's the top 60 stones that get collected and saved and then they put together in a collection and then uh, shown around the world to private collectors and to, uh, you know, leading diamantes. And uh, that's an amazing experience to be in a room with just 60 of, you know, the best production. At the time, they were mining 40 million carats, you know, and these were probably, l- l- you know, well less than 60 or 70 carats.
0: My God. Mm. Yeah, I guess the layman person just couldn't fathom that until you, until you see. It's <laughs> it It's overwhelming. As well. You, did you have to pinch yourself and just be like, this, you know, is this
1: real? It's a bit of a baptism fire, really, when you first start. Because, um, funnily enough, I, I'd got the job out of a newspaper. Huh. And um, after I'd started, my boss came to me and said, Oh, you're not colour blind by any chance, are you? And I figured. Um, Luckily I wasn't, but uh, it would have been a career-limiting move, I expect, if I was, yeah.
0: Because I was going to say, how did you get into it? And you've just said an ad in the paper. I mean, was it like wanted, diamond trade, like?
1: Uh, yeah. Really? Yeah. Kind of like okay. that, yeah. But I think they were looking for a certain skill set. You know, They weren't looking for someone necessarily that had diamond skills, but an aptitude to learn. And uh, my background had been a lot of international travel, and uh, I've done an MBA in international business before and, and a marketing degree, so... Had like a uh, probably good prospect for for understanding the product and how to sell it technically as well. So,
0: what's the most challenging aspect of the job?
1: Um, I think probably we're, as we we're talking before about the global financial crisis it was probably mm-hmm. the most difficult time of my career in the diamond business. You know, t- trying to sell something and get a revenue stream that's going to keep the company going, and trying to work with customers because you know we have very strong working relationships in that in that space. Particularly, you know, because like, you know, there's a bit of giving and taking in terms of um, how to manage a relationship. And so when um, the times are good, then um, the times are good when they're bad, you kind of like help each other out. And there's a lot of this kind of, the the individuals themselves almost like friends or partly like families, you know what I mean? A lot of them are family businesses as such.
0: See, that's Uh, surprising because you'd think it's such a, I mean, a cutthroat business, high end people, you know, everyone's in it for themselves. But that's, yeah, Mm. different story then. Is the, I guess, so obviously society's built up diamonds to just be this ore, and, you know, girl's best friend and people are spending heaps of money on it. From being at the, on the other end of it all, is that warranted? Have we hyped them up more than they really should be? What's your take on it? Um,
1: unfortunately, like, in the white space, the, you know, the product has become more commoditized because there's a, a company called Rapaport that produces a price list and there's, like, a known quantity but in the fancy colour space it's still relatively unknown um, and so someone like myself can help a customer to buy based on you know my experience and knowledge and understanding of the business and what's actually real versus what's not really rare real. and th- there's quite a few nuances to know about you know fluorescence in the stones how the face-up colour performs um, where the impurity is in the stone in relation to um, the actual face-up value of the stone so uh, and also how the stones made. You know whether a stone's a shallow stone or a heavy stone. And
0: what's the difference between those? Uh,
1: shallow stones generally are too flat, and so there's the light doesn't work. So for all intents and purposes, a, a diamond is actually like a mirror. When you look through the top, um, the light's supposed to go in through the table, which is that square. There's two squares in the in the center of the stone, and then it reflects off the bottom pavilions. The light itself from one to the other, and then comes back out. So um, you can tell a non-diamond by putting it on the on, on a Flat surface on a book with some notes, and then mm-hmm. you can actually read behind it if it's actually not a diamond because oh. it's like a mirror, all of the things that are going into it should be going out again. Okay, yeah, and so, um, really depending on the cut and the polish and the symmetry of the stone as to how, how it performs. Yeah. These
0: diamond companies, how much are they making
1: yearly, roughly? Oh, it depends on the company. <laughs> you mean small companies or big, big diamond companies? Or big diamond companies, um, obviously it's profitable to to be doing that, you know, in in terms of the mining itself, it's, I I can't give you a figure, I suppose, off the top of my head, but um, generally the closer you get to the customer, the higher the product is in the value chain, and so the more the margin is, having said that, that, you know, running a mining operation is very expensive, so these guys have to cover their costs um, and make some profit as well to keep them going, so, you know, mining's very interesting, if you think about diamonds, they've been sitting under the earth you know, for millions of years, and it's only volcanic activity that brings them to the surface. Um, and so you have things like the Argyle pipe up in, um, in the Kimberley, which has uh, been an amazing pipe, you know. In terms of, like, the world has been the leading volume diamond pipe in the world, it also has the most number of coloured diamonds, assortment of coloured diamonds in the world as well. So, yeah. And so that's hard rock mining. Um, the other type of mining is uh, alluvial mining, where you've had some sort of eruption... The diamonds themselves are spewed out they 've been you know chased down to a riverbed or a, a river stream with um, uh, rains and and the like and the, generally these alluvial diamonds you 'll find have less imperfections and are in larger sizes as well so alluvials are generally what people try and look for to locate where an actual mine is it 's like finding a needle in a haystack wow. yeah there 's like i think uh, four thousand known kimberlite pipes, and four hundred of those are diamondiferous, but then there 's only a small handful, maybe eight or ten of those that are actually operating because to be diamondiferous and have diamonds is one thing but to have an economic level of diamonds in terms of the carats per ton is, um, is pretty, pretty hard to find.
0: So that's why they have the price tag they do, the amount of work that is going into these.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Okay, because on the other side, everyone was like, "Oh, you know, we, we built a, these up, and it's all a marketing ploy, and blah blah blah." But it actually, the reality is, these are really hard to get.
1: Yeah, I suppose you know it's a, a limited resource as well. So you've got the population that's growing, and more more consumers coming to the market, and you've got fewer and fewer diamonds that are available. So, for argument's sake, Argyle will be closing next year, and it's been you know running for over over thirty years now. Why is it closing? So it's, again, getting to that point where it's uneconomic to mine. So they went from open-cut mine to um, underground mining, and then you get into a place now where it's just the the cost of getting the diamonds out versus the volumes and the carats per tonne that you're getting is becoming less and less economic, yeah.
0: So I was going to ask, um, where's the industry headed? I mean, you've just said Argyle's closing. Are we going to see the prices of diamonds going even higher?
1: I think in the fancy-coloured area, you know, once Argo closes its doors, it's probably like putting out 90% of the world's pink diamonds at the moment. Okay. So th- we should see some sort of price you know, um, improvement on, on pink diamonds going forward. But um, in terms of just diamonds in general, it's, it's very hard to replace the diamond assets that people have now. So, of course, you know, people will start exploring and finding the easiest ones to find. The next level down is the harder ones to find. And so... It's a complex business because uh, a lot of that stuff's operated in a junior mining space and those guys need money for exploration. And if there's no appetite for, to support them in their efforts, generally one of the big miners will come in and buy a deposit off them when they've already kind of identified it and valued it as well
0: okay.
1: uh, rather than expending the exercise in, in exploration. So I think it's going to be a t- tighter market going forward, so no, no question.
0: So why should someone invest in diamonds over, say, buying gold?
1: Uh, well, certainly the returns can speak for themselves in in particularly fancy color diamonds. And they've they've out, out, you know out well outstripped gold in terms of their returns. Okay, but you, you have to know what you're buying. This is what it comes down to. Yeah, and you have to have a plan about you know how long do you want to keep it for. A lot of people are now buying uh, diamonds through their superannuation funds as well. Ah, yeah, it's it's allowable here in Australia. So,
0: gee, I didn't know that. You're ta- mm. teaching me even more here, Joseph. Yeah. <laughs> is there anything else that we should know? from Joseph.
1: I think um you know one time I uh made a trip out to the Northwest Territories it's 200k south of the Arctic Circle. Okay. And uh there's a mine they called the Diavik mine which is operated by Rio Tinto um and a joint venture partner and it's just amazing when you go to these places you know it's there's bears there's like no one for you know miles and miles it's just an airstrip they fly you in and then there's um like a wall that they inject like nitrogen to keep it frozen all year round and that wall keeps the water out of the mine and just amazing undertaking. And I think you've seen the ice road truckers show, Mm. you know, that's kind of based around getting all those supplies to the mine when the ice road is operating and then obviously for a lot of the time it's not operating so wow um it's just a beautiful part of the world that you know that my job has taken me to so it's been really exciting
0: i mean that's tough conditions
1: yeah it's, it gets to like uh, minus 45 or something it's crazy you what know they? they have to keep the machines running 24 7 because as soon as they turn them off things start like freezing up oh. yeah
0: so what are they producing there
1: the uh, Mining. yeah mainly white diamonds okay yeah white and yellows yeah
0: God, that's a lengthy way to go for
1: diamonds. Well, exactly. This is what I'm saying It's a very expensive exercise to set up a mine.
0: Wow. Hmm. Tell us uh, any more.
1: Um, it's just been an interesting life because uh, you know I've worked with bodyguards in the past and travelled with bodyguards, and that takes a bit of getting used to as well. Because in a way, you're almost better to have no bodyguards and be anonymous than have a couple of people walking by you. So. So it took a little bit of getting used to.
0: So you said before you were in Hong Kong with six million dollars worth of diamonds. Yeah. What's is that the most you ever had on you at one time?
1: Uh, probably. Gee. Yeah.
0: Do you, that, does that feel
1: like super boss as well? I think it's more about um, <laughs> if when you first start the business, you f- you know you're worried about dropping something, or um, you know when you pick up a stone and you know it's like a ten million dollar stone or three million dollar stone, then um, obviously you learn how to handle those stones because, um, you know, we use, we use our fingers or we use tweezers depending on the stone. Okay, um, gloves. No, generally not gloves. Oh, okay. Although having said that, the stones themselves, they, they take all the oils off your fingers, you know, and so you have to clean them when you use them.
0: Yeah, I can't imagine holding millions of dollars of stuff on me. I'd be... It's like if I've done a withdrawal from the ATM and I've got like a couple hundred
1: dollars, I'm like, oh, I've got to be really careful of my wallet, let alone <laughs> oh, money. Exactly, yeah. I think the main thing is, you know, that nobody knows who you are necessarily. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So, even flying in airports and stuff. I remember one time being in Heathrow and um, passing a bag full of diamonds, you know, through the security the security check, yeah. Oh, my God. And then the lady said, oh, what's in the, in the bag? And I, I reached into her and said, oh, they're diamonds. And then the lady at the other end called out, what did he say they were? And then she goes, oh, it's okay, they're just diamonds. Yeah, which was pretty pretty compromising at the time. But, um, what an
0: idiot. Yeah. Why would she say that?
1: I, I, they're, you know, people that work at the airport, so, yeah.
0: They're just diamonds as well, <laughs> honey. Yeah, because
1: <laughs> yeah, they're carbon, they come up as just little black spots on those X-ray machines. So.
0: So, yeah, so they are allowed. Did you just get stopped often when you went through security?
1: Uh, no, generally not, yeah. So I used to travel with a special system that okay. you would get the stones in and out without having to... Leave them behind. So.
0: yeah, did you get pretty pally with your bodyguards, or you had a different one each time?
1: Uh, yeah, depending on where I went, some some are ex, um, SAS people, or some are on on duty off duty police officers, some carried guns, some didn't. You know, really dependent on which part of the world I was in. So,
0: how many Blood Diamond references did you have throughout your career? Uh, just well, luckily, I've friends.
1: Worked, yeah, I've always <laughs> I've plenty from friends, but you know, I've always worked with um, mining companies that have like a captive source, so. Uh, they own the mines. We sell the the diamonds, and we track the diamonds from the mine all the way through to the end customer. And so, um, to say I haven't seen blood diamonds or stones that have had you know questionable histories, you know that's part part of the industry. But certainly less and less these days, I find.
0: It was more. Uh, my boyfriend is constantly being like, "Where is the diamond?" He literally wanted to ask you that. So oh, really? That's coming from him. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I was like, I hope he's seen the movie. Otherwise, this is awkward. <laughs> thank you so much, Joseph. I really appreciate you coming
1: on. Great. Thanks for teaching us. Okay, no problems. See ya.
0: Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode of Teach Me in 20. If you did, and if you even just learned one thing, make sure you subscribe so each week you can learn something new with me. Bye.